You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rafke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Let me welcome everyone to this episode of The Zeitgeist. I'm Jeff Rathke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies. Today's discussion is part of a series we've been doing on the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on Germany and the United States and the importance of the transatlantic partnership in, in addressing those challenges. And our focus today is on mis- and disinformation. Uh, and uh, we've got uh, two, two great uh, uh, experts to, to join us. Uh, the first is uh, Dr. Rebecca Trombel. Um, uh, welcome, Rebecca. Thank you, Jeff. I'm really happy to be here. Uh, I'm delighted to have you with us. Um, tell us in a sentence what, uh, what the focus of your work is. Well, I'm the director of the Institute for Data, Democracy, and Politics at George Washington University, um, and there are really two parts of my work at the moment. First, I'm a traditional empirical researcher, and as I half-jokingly tell people, um, I have the pleasure of spending most of my research life looking at the deepest and darkest parts of humanity online. I study mis- and disinformation, um, hate speech and harassment, and so on. Uh, but the, the other piece of my day-in and day-out work is really um, much more focused on speaking with policymakers in Europe and in the US, as well as other places in the world, um, trying to allow researchers like myself and the public more broadly uh, see better access to information from the platforms themselves so that we can better understand these phenomenon and ultimately hold the platforms accountable um, for the, uh, the sorts of harms that they're uh, having on, on our societies. Okay. And we are also joined today by Alex uh, Zengerlaub, uh, joining us from Berlin. Alex, welcome. Hi, Jeff. Uh, so, so tell us, uh, tell us in uh, what's the focus uh, of of your work uh, at the start? I'm the director of a think and do tank we call Futur 1 in Berlin, and we are working on the topic of the utopia of informed societies and what leads to informed societies. So, it's a question of better journalism. We're discussing a lot about this constructive journalism these days, a Scandinavian approach to be more solution-oriented, more having more perspectives in journalism and things like that. But we're also discussing news literacy of societies, of course, um, policy decision-making and the laws we are having right now in the European Union, the Digital Services Act, but also looking, of course, at the platforms and Uh, yeah, how big is the scope on the platforms and are we really coming forward in these issues or are we still discussing the same things over the last 10 years? Yeah, okay. Uh, okay, well, I think this sets us up perfectly. Uh, you know, I was struck, the, the last discussion that we did in this series was on population health and public health and the way our societies have coped with the pandemic purely from, you know, from the uh, point of view of protecting the population and healing the population and preventing infections. But it strikes me that fundamentally what we're talking about is trust um, because a lack of trust in the public health uh, system uh, leads uh, to uh, poor population health and that increases risks and vulnerabilities uh, in a pandemic. In the same way, the tr trust is at the basis of everything 
that happens uh, in any society. It's your trust that an economic transaction is going to take place the way you expect. It's trust that you can follow the recommendations of authorities, local, state, national. It is trust um, that the things that the, that the news you receive, um, the media you consume is, is accurate. So it, it, all of this is about trust. And I think tr it's fair to say that trust has suffered in the, the pandemic. Uh, and that kind of brings me to the first uh, aspect of this, you know, sources of misinformation and disinformation. Rebecca, uh, this is something you've highlighted. And is this, uh, you know, is there more misinformation and disinformation now, or are we just more conscious of it? It's really difficult to say whether there's more mis- and disinformation within our information ecosystems than there was at any other point in time. But we have two key differences right now. Um, one is that there is considerably more attention to the issue. Um, and I think that's directly tied to the second key difference, which is we're operating in an information ecosystem where information uh, is, is rapidly spread across the world, right? Much faster than we have ever seen and with much less friction, with much greater ease than we've ever seen before. And this dynamic in and of itself makes mis- and disinformation feel more powerful and brings broader attention to it. And so we see policymakers concerned with it. We see a great deal of mass media attention being paid to it. And the more attention is paid to it and the more people really believe that it is a bigger and, and you know, worse problem than ever before, the, the less trust people are going to have in that overall information ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And I think you've really hit the nail on the head there in emphasizing that trust is at the heart of all of these issues. Okay. So Alex, um, I know that uh, you've done research on news literacy, media literacy. Um, what is your assessment or what's the what's the result of of that research when you try to look at the ability of people to distinguish um, uh, you know fact from fiction, let's say um, it, when when they're exposed to it? I mean, what's happened in the media ecosystem is that we changed from the age of mass media into the age of many-to-many -many communication. And this brings a lot of new questions to societies to find their ways from A to B in the digital world. And so what we did basically is like writing a class axiom with the population of Germany with around over 4,000 people who did this class axiom about media literacy. And we wanted to find out how aware are people of what is the difference between information and disinformation, are they checking sources, do they know what an algorithm is? Do they know how the media system is functioning? And so we did this, this little test with the people and found out that unfortunately, half of the people in Germany are not news literate at all. And that's a big problem, of course, if we are all having these little things in our hands that we call smartphones and we are using them every day. But most of the people never had something in school like media literacy as a subject or something. And so there's a lot to do because the way that we inform ourselves, the way that we share information, it changed rapidly from head to toe. And that's why we need to, really need to find ways to, to make people literate out there. Mm -hmm. And, and how, uh, how literate uh, is, is German society, for example, when it comes to um, news literacy? We had around 
20% of the people who have a high amount of news that we see. So not very much. Then we have 33% that they are in the middle and almost half of the people are not news literate at all. So around 50%. And well, can I interrupt you there for a second? What, when you say not news literate, does that mean people who will just, who don't distinguish between um, uh, false or and accurate information? Or what does that mean to, to get that kind of failing score on your, on your test? In this test, you, you, the, the maximum was 30 points that people could get in the end of this test, where we had a very broad, um, very broad questions from really like seeing a disinformation on Facebook, seeing them even if there's a fact check under it or not, or seeing for instance, or understanding is uh, WhatsApp a part of Google or of Meta or does it belong to someone? So a lot of questions that are really related in these, related to this ecosystem of media that you use every day. And what we are seeing that the average was just 13 of 30 points in the whole population that we ask. And the people who have almost no news that we see, they have something between zero and 12 points or maybe even less than that. And yeah, this is something that we haven't tackled so far in Germany because we feel like every good panel, it ends with that everyone is saying, and we need more media literacy. And then everyone <laughs> is saying, yeah, it is exactly like this, but what's coming then? And um, we think that in the education system in Germany, we are really, really low in adapting to this new media ecosystem. Even we don't have Wi-Fi in most of the schools. <laughs> and I mean, if we already have problems with the infrastructure, then it's even harder to get to the topics and to make teachers aware of this, to help them to, yeah, to, to do an hour with the class about this information. Yeah. So what to do. Okay. Uh, well, the, the what to do, I will come to that um, in a little bit because that's uh, crucial, you know, what the conclusions we draw from this. But I want to explore this a little bit further. And, you know, Rebecca, I was looking at uh, one of the projects uh, you are uh, involved with at the moment. It has the title, The Misinformed Citizen, with the miss in parentheses. So you can, you know, guess whether, you know, uh, folks are informed or misinformed or a mixture of both. But one of the intriguing things that I saw there and that I'd ask you to expand upon a little bit is, you know, we tend to think in polar opposites. There is quality news, i.e. facts, and then there is misinformation, things that are wrong, or disinformation, things that are deliberately wrong, you know, and we see these as opposites, uh, facts versus misdisinformation. Um, but I think one of the points you make is that that is not quite so clear-cut um, can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, there are actually a number of reasons why that distinction isn't nearly so clear cut. Um, one is that, and, and we often see those who peddle in disinformation making use of this first um, th this first dynamic, which is that you can say true things in a way that is designed to mislead people, right, in their thinking. So, you know, we frequently hear um, politicians or, you know, those uh, in, in certain mass media venues um, asking questions rather than making statements, right? Mm -hmm. And so they're not saying something that is blatantly untrue because they're just asking the question, so to speak. Um, 
but of course, the asking the question is designed to mislead people and to press their thinking in a particular direction. But then another dynamic is simply that there are many issues in the world where the distinction between truth and untruth, fact and fiction, isn't really clear, right? We don't have settled fact or not fact on the particular issue. And I think the, the COVID-19 pandemic really laid bare how important this kind of gray area remains in so much of public life. Especially early on in the pandemic, there was just a ton that we didn't know. And public health officials were trying to work um, we're working to try to be very careful in how they couched right, the information and to make it clear to people that there was uncertainty. But bottom line, people don't deal very well with uncertainty. Um, and so we tend to either reach conclusions based on those gray areas that we shouldn't, or we sort of shut down our thinking about those issues at all. Um, and, and so ultimately, right, we, we, can't we don't have a lot of comfort living in those gray zones, which itself goes back to right the very first question you asked about societal trust, because the less certainty there is, the less trust there is. So getting outside of this black and white fact or fiction thinking um, is going to be really important for us to increase overall levels of trust going forward. Right. And to, to go one layer uh, deeper, uh, it on that, uh, I think you make the point that exposure to high quality information does not necessarily lead to informed decision making. So, in other words, uh, you know, is there a point at which uh, the quality of uh, of news and information is irrelevant? I, I don't think it's ever irrelevant, right? We do want information environments where there's higher quality, more accurate information than not, because if we're awash in disinformation and low quality information. That's all that will, or most of what will be available to shape people's thinking. But the point that simply having high quality and accurate information in front of us does not mean, right, that we will accept, believe, and spread accurate information um, is really important for us to consider, right, as we try to tackle the problem and mis disinformation going forward. People use things like motivated reasoning, right? They they tie their belief systems to deeply held identities. Um, and, and we know from decades of psychological research that people are really good at consciously and unconsciously explaining away things that don't fit with those worldviews. And so simply putting accurate, high quality information in front of people doesn't mean that that is going to be, you know, deeply felt and accepted by them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and this starts to bring us to the question of, you know, what do we do about this? Um, uh, and uh, Alex, uh, you know, you've, uh, identified a few resilience factors. Uh, and, and one of those has to do with the, the media system, but also regulation of media. And I think this is an area where you find very different approaches uh, in Europe versus the United States. Uh, can you say a little bit about um, media system and regulation and how that ideally um, uh, can work, and uh, perhaps if if, you, if there are examples of it that you want to um, bring forward, that would that would help illustrate. 
Before I come to that point, I just want to add something to Rebecca. Please. Because we, we have seen in our study, we, we asked the people, do you have trust in media? Do you have trust in politics? So we really had this um, idea of trust is a glue in democracy. I mean, in, in non-democracies, it's fear that is the, the, the main layer in societies, but in democracies, it's trust. And if people don't have trust in the state authorities, in the health system, in the media system, then it's really interesting that they are starting to deny coronavirus because the state is saying the coronavirus is there. So if we don't have trust in democracies, they are not working. Then people will not be vaccinated. People will go on the street and saying corona isn't true or whatever. So we really have to tackle the this issue of trust if we want to have stable democracies. And this is something that we forget if we're just discussing about is effect true or is it not true and so on. We really have to go deeper to understand what's the layer under this. If we talk about disinformation, that is much more a symptom of polarized societies, of uh, societies who don't have trust in a lot of um, societal parts of it. And yeah, this uh, leads to, to regulation, of course, as well. Because we felt that the idea of, of social media is, if you think about it, it's a great idea. So people can participate in public spheres. This is a really, really new thing in the idea of public spheres that everyone is a part of this and can share comments and thoughts and information and so on. But this is not working without rules or social norms that are maybe activated in these public spheres. And what we could see is that these platforms are not built for democracy. Their idea was not to build something where people can discuss its advertising platforms, where your data is sold to the advertising industry. But it's not like you have social norms. If we are sitting here together, the three of us, of course, there are social norms. We can see each other. We want to be nice to each other. Um, we like each other maybe in the last 10 minutes because we feel like, oh, everyone is an expert in this field. It's nice to chat and talk to each other. But if you are on, on Facebook and you have no clue who are the others, then all of these social norms are not activated. And that's why we have places that they are full of hate and full of disinformation and full of people without social norms. And so we have to do something <laughs> about it. And we can, of course, talk to the platforms and say to them, oh, could you create better algorithms or better emojis or better rules or better moderation? But this alone will not work. So we need to find good regulations to them and maybe force them, this is what we are doing in Germany, but also in Europe, to delete the hate much faster, to do something like creating structures that disinformation will be fact-checked and things like this that needs to be, yeah, needs to be put in regulation. So we have rules that work for societies so that they will not fall apart in the end. And I mean, we have a lot of good rules in Europe about the old media system, having this idea of the public broadcasters, for instance, that are super huge and important in, in Europe, where we can see that this is like a barrier against disinformation. The trust in the public broadcasters in Germany, like IRD and ZDF is super high, almost 70% of the people have trust in these media. And this is really interesting because in the crisis, a lot of people tend to listen to them and say, mm, we believe in this media. Maybe they are saying the truth and this is helping us. And maybe we need 
this idea of a little bit of regulation for the media ecosystem, like we have them at the public at the public broadcasters, also for the social networks. And th this is what we are basically trying right now in Europe with the Digital Services Act. Mm -hmm. Rebecca, um, your thoughts on on the role of uh, of regulation. Um, I've also been deeply engaged uh, in conversations with policymakers across Europe um, on these issues, uh, including the Digital Services Act. Um, it's striking to, to witness and be part of the conversations and see the difference between the way that European policymakers are thinking about this and U.S. policymakers are thinking about it. Now, of course, um, you know, Regulations that are in place in Germany that Alex was just talking about that require the platforms to take down hate speech relatively quickly, um, those would simply never pass muster. They would never get past the First Amendment test uh, in the United States. And so we're, we're operating in a very different environment uh, just you know, from, from a basic legal uh, perspective. At the same time, right, there isn't nearly as much um, sort of agreement and political will among policymakers uh, that something needs to be done in the first place, let alone what precisely needs to be done. Um, and so I think we're going to see going forward that Europe is going to continue to lead the way in terms of uh, platform transparency and platform accountability measures. Um, and that to the extent that we see any forward movement in the US, it will be mostly building on the advances that we've seen in Europe first. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So a bit of an analogy, for example, to the GDPR, the privacy um, uh, regulation, which is in, was introduced in Europe and which, uh, you know, technology companies, especially in any media that are present in both spheres, then simply have to um, apply because uh, it's it's the it's the price of entry if you have a European audience. Um, so th something like that. Yeah, for certain parts of GDPR, right? That's true. Yes. That's why we all in the U.S. get to see right the pop-ups every time asking us about cookie policies. We can uh, blame GDPR or thank GDPR, depending on your perspective, for that, right? But there are a number of other principles that apply in Europe under GDPR that the companies aren't applying in the U.S. So, for example, the the policy of data minimization. Um, so, I think even with Europe leading the way with measures like the digital. Services Act, yes, the platforms are going to have to fundamentally, fundamentally transform certain elements of their actions and behavior in order to comply uh, with those new rules. But it doesn't mean, right, that they will apply them uniformly, truly across the board in the U.S. and, and otherwise outside of the European Union. I mm -hmm. think it's definitely going to help, right? But it is not, Europe isn't providing the fix-all for the rest of the world, unfortunately. Right. And, and to stick with the you know, what do we do about uh, this uh, question? Um, I wanted Rebecca to come back to a point that uh, I, I think you've raised, and that is, you know, it's not only, if we're talking about rebuilding trust, you know, how does that happen? Um, what are the mechanisms that have to be in place in order to, uh, yeah, to, to shore up and to give that confidence uh, in in information sources, how, how do you how do you see that functioning? What's the path forward? So, 
I'll be really honest here and say that I think the path forward is going to prove incredibly difficult in the next year or two. Um, as long as we remain right in the midst of a global pandemic, and as long as we're facing um, real ex the real existential threat of the war in Ukraine, um, the the large challenge to societal levels of to to societal wide levels of trust um, is going to be profound. Um, I think there are small steps that can be taken in the meantime. Um, I love that, you know, a few minutes ago, Alex was talking about the power of public broadcasting in Germany uh, when he said early on, right, that that only about 50 percent of Germans could be considered media literate in some uh, way. My immediate thought was, I think that's a really high number compared to the U.S. And part of that reason is that we don't have a really strong system of public broadcasting or trust in public broadcasting. And so I think efforts to, to build um, a more robust information ecosystem, rebuild local journalism in particular, because that's the space and place at which people most um, identify with and are most likely to trust the information that they're receiving. I think those are, are efforts that we can take, right, starting now for sure. But will we kind of get across the bar over the hurdle and really address these trust issues at a societal wide level um, to the degree that we need to in the next couple of years? I have some skepticism and some doubt, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And Alex, to come back to you um, uh, on this question of the way forward and uh, uh, rebuilding, not just rebuilding trust, but uh, of course, that's a part of it. Um, uh, how do you see, what other measures do you see that uh, either in a German or in an American context would be, um, would be helpful in pursuing um, that end? It's definitely about the four resilience factors you talked about earlier. I, I, I didn't came to the point where I explained them. The first resilience factor is the political system in itself. So if something really awful will happening and maybe Donald Trump will be reelected or uh, will be back in charge in, in, in your next, next election, then you have disinformation right out of the White House. And this is something that is... Um, not helpful if a political system is not based on on, on facts in their um, decisions, if it's using disinformation as a communication strategy. So political system is really important as factor number one. Factor number two, we talked about it, it's the trust in, in media and the trust in journalism. And we can see that the people who are much younger than us, they don't believe in newspapers anymore. They don't believe in, in, in mainstream media. They're on TikTok and Instagram and whatever. And we have to find out how we can provide good information for them in these new, new um, news ecosystems. So journalism needs to be relevant for societies to inform them in a good way. This is factor number two. And factor number three are the platforms. And we could see from the from the Francis Hogan leaks that a lot of things are not working in these platforms and they are not providing the infrastructures that are big enough to tackle disinformation. For instance, when Facebook started to, to fact check disinformation in Germany, they had three people for 40 million people who are using Facebook in Germany without Instagram and WhatsApp. So do the platforms really, are they doing enough for saving our democracies when it comes to that. This is a factor number three. 
And the last one we talked already about it is the question of news literacy of societies. And then we have to take a further look at the educational systems in the in the US and in Germany if we are really doing enough. So it's a lot to do because it's not just you have one solution that fits all and then pop, everything's fine. You really need to um, do a lot of groundwork and, and think in a lot of directions at the same time. Rebecca, uh, I want to come back to the, the word that I think you used early on. I think it was you who used it, accountability. And what does accountability mean? Um, it means on the one hand, uh, I think, uh, as Alex was talking about in the German context, the, uh, the, the requirements to remove um, hate speech um, and, and similar uh, information that uh, violates uh, laws and regulations. But it seems to me that accountability has to be more than that if it's going to be effective. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, each of the actors that we've talked both directly and indirectly today about, you know, being responsible in some way, at least having some level of responsibility for the spread of mis and disinformation, um, need to face some degree of accountability. Um, so, you know, first we start with those who are themselves actively and purposefully spreading disinformation. Um, those are often uh, political actors, right, who see benefits to their power and their political standing from spreading disinformation. They're often uh, economic actors who gain money um, from spreading disinformation. And in some cases, right, the actions actually rise to the level of criminal liability, and we should hold people accountable in those terms. But crucially, beyond the sort of criminal legal system, we also need to be thinking about the political and socioeconomic consequences, the mechanisms for accountability that we could that we can use. Um, you know, one of the biggest challenges in the U.S. right now is that those who are actively spreading disinformation are not seeing consequences for that at the polls. Um, and so, you know, there's some basic kind of uh, grassroots level organizing work that needs to be done um, to ensure that we have greater accountability um, for those who are fundamentally undermining democratic institutions and breaking violating democratic norms. Then of course, there's accountability for those who you know, are providing the space um, and uh, uh, you know, and the means and the tools for spreading disinformation. And there we principally think about the platforms and we've, we've already talked about some of the approaches to that. But I think there's one other crucial actor here, right? While both Alex and I have talked a lot um, about bolstering the sort of mass media um, ecosystem, supporting public broadcasting, local journalism, and so on, we also need to recognize that mass media outlets um, are somewhat responsible, right, for helping to spread and create essentially the hype around mis and disinformation and therefore, right, really increase or, or decrease levels of trust society wide. Um, because, you know, a lot of these outlets are getting a ton of clicks and views and readers, right, from playing up every ridiculous, horrible thing that politicians and others are saying, and are therefore making it feel to the public at large um, that, that we're really awash, right? That everything is broken, which in turn decreases trust. 
um, and, and has this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. So I would honestly like to see a bit of accountability for um, the mass media itself in adopting um, better norms and standards going forward for its own coverage of mis and disinformation. And, and I think, you know, what, uh, what you've both uh, approached from slightly different perspectives is the, I guess, a fundamental reality that there is no one rule or law or um, regulation that uh, solves these problems. I think uh, what you were just saying, Rebecca, is that the answer is, in a way, in our hands. It's up to us to demand um, uh, accountability from political leaders, um, from uh, actors in the media space, uh, from uh, companies that uh, also uh, influence, shape, or provide the, uh, the, the media spaces that we've come to rely on. So um, it's all back on us, uh, that is. Uh, there's no solution without our own participation, without taking these issues seriously and addressing them as matters of priority. It's hard, but in democratic societies, that's the way it has to be, right? It is on us, the citizens, um, to ultimately uh, fix these problems. Well, and I think uh, as maybe that's a good place for us to wrap up uh, this conversation um, with uh, a reminder to all of us that uh, that we are not just consumers, we are shapers of, uh, of, of this uh, environment. Um, it's been a real uh, pleasure for me to talk to you, and I think this has brought out some, uh, some really fascinating insights. Uh, I want to thank once more Alex Zengerlaub, the director and co-founder of Futur 1, uh, also, by the way, the founder of the magazine uh, Qatar Demos and the head of the future of journalism at the Bonn Institute. Alex, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. And Rebecca Trombel, um, who is associate professor in the School of Media and Public Affairs and also the director of the Institute for Data, Democracy and Politics at George Washington University, just down the street from us here at AICGS. Thank you for having me. It's been a great conversation. And I want to thank all of you who have been with us uh, listening today. And we look forward to having you uh, join us again on the next episode of The Zeitgeist. Thanks so much. And until next time, bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast produced by the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Send us your feedback by email to info at AICGS.org or catch us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at AICGS. Don't forget to check out AICGS.org for more information from today's episode. Auf Wiederhören.